Amen. How many are glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? We were so blessed last week by Munir and Sharon Kakish. We we're so glad that they were here uh, sharing what God is doing in, in Ramallah. And then, of course, sharing in the celebration of Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. Amen. We don't worship a dead man, right? Worship a living king this morning. So before we get into this new series, let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful for the opportunity to minister this morning. I'm so thankful for this word, for this series, for this message. Lord, uh, show us what it means to be the church. Show us what it means to be the ecclesia. Lord, I pray that as we get into this series, that what is preached would not be my words, but your words. And not my thoughts, but your thoughts. Lord, let it forever impact our understanding of who we are as the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This new series is called Ecclesia. We are jumping off of the resurrection. Somebody say Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Now I want you to say this. Say the church. The church. How many, how many here are part of the church? Amen. I don't just mean you're a member at, at this church, but how many are part of the church? You see, the truth is this. The building we're sitting in today is a beautiful building, right? It's nice. It's beautiful. We're blessed to have it. But this building is not the church. Amen? This building is not the church. It is a church. It is what we would call a local body of believers. So some people have questioned, you know, why do we have denominations? Why do we have different separations among the Christian body? And the truth is, there's some, there's, we agree on most things, some things we may disagree with. There's some uh, break-offs and, and churches that aren't biblical in any way. And so we want to make sure that we're belonging to a local body that is a Bible-believing, Jesus-glorifying church. Amen. That's what we want to be a part of. So say, say this. Don't say uh, this is the church, but say we are the church. We are the church is simply the understanding that the church are all those who have received faith through Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the Bible. Amen. If they received faith through Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible, they are part of the church. So what we call the universal church. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23 says this, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Go next slide. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Another way to say this is that we are the ecclesia. Say ecclesia. The word church is derived or translated from the Greek word ecclesia, and it means this. It means an assembly or the called out ones. Go to the next slide, Mikey. The called out ones, the, the root meaning of church is not that of a building, but of a people. Amen? How many are glad to be part of the church? You who are part of the body of Christ are the ecclesia. You are called out. Now, what is it you're called out of? What is it we're called out of? Sin? Darkness? Anybody else? What is it we're called out of? 
the world, a worldly system, a system that's rooted in sin. And what are we called into? We're called into a heavenly system that's rooted in righteousness. Amen? So we are called out of one and into another. When you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Master, you went from death to life, right? You went from sin to righteousness, and not by our means, but only by the blood. Amen? I said, I think it was uh, either the week before Easter or maybe two weeks before, we believe, you know, a lot of, a lot of times we say salvation is, is not by works. The truth is that it is by works. If you haven't heard this message, you need to hear this clearly. Salvation is by works. It's just not by ours. It's by all of his. Amen? His is the work that was done. His is the blood that was shed. His is the body that was put upon the tree. We reap the benefits of it by the grace of God. Amen? You are called to the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, in the series we are, uh, we are beginning this week, I want us to fully examine the beginnings of the church to fully examine what it means to be the ecclesia. And to do that, we are going to start, we're going to begin a Bible study in the book of Acts. Now, what we're going to be doing is, you know, with Revelation, we kind of went verse by verse for the most part. We're not going to be doing that with Acts so much. But we are going to begin to understand the beginnings of the church, who we are, what we are called to do, and maybe look at today's church and find out where we are lacking. I'm in the middle of a great book right now by a man named Erwin Lutzer. He's a pastor. The book is called We Will Not Be Silenced. It is a book about the culture wars that are happening right now. In reference to sexuality, in reference to race, in reference to gender, in reference to all sorts of these different things, why is the church silent? on issues that are changing the very fabric of our society. Why is the church silent? He mentioned in there that his goal in writing the book, his goal as a pastor and speaking to the people, wasn't to change the culture. They're already down the rabbit hole. It's for the church to be sustained. It's for the church to understand its biblical priorities. It's for the church to uphold those biblical values. Because if the church starts going, we are down a slippery slope that nobody wants to go down. Who are we as the church? If you have a physical Bible with you, how many have a physical Bible with them this morning? I have my physical Bible at home. I, I enjoy it. I, I love it. It's in a cover. I've had it for many, many, many years and if you open it up to the book of Acts, the title of it would be The Acts of the Apostles. So in terms of definition, this is a book that describes the acts of those who walked with and experienced Jesus personally. Amen? This is describing what happened to them. Years ago, I had a professor who encouraged us to draw a line through the word the apostles and instead fill it in with the Holy Spirit. So in my Bible, it reads the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what we see throughout all of Acts 
is not just what happened to the men who were following Jesus or the women who were following Jesus, but we see the move of the Holy Spirit throughout the entire thing. And if we are the church, we want to make sure that the move of the Holy Spirit is happening here just like it was there. Amen? Don't get too excited. Now, I'm not telling you to scratch it off in your Bible and put it in the, you know, you don't have to do that. But we will soon see how much of the book of Acts is really just the Holy Spirit moving and operating in the life and ministry of the apostles. How, the, how he moved then and how he moves now. Amen? How many, how many want the Holy Spirit to operate in your life? I do. Amen? I want him to lead and guide us. We're going to talk about that Oh, here in just a little bit. Let's get, get excited. How many, how many want to know God's will for your life? Right? How many want to know, God, what's your will? We're going to see how they determine God's will early on. And what can we do about it now? We begin this series in the book of Acts, but we are not going to start in the book of Acts. We're going to start in the book of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and you say, why not just start in Acts? Because the study of the Bible is a study in context. If we are not reading the Bible in context, we are reading it out of context. And if we are reading it out of context, we get into some weird thought, belief, and tradition. We want to make sure that when we read the Bible, we're reading it in context. So to be understanding of the context of Acts, we have to start in Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. Say Theophilus. It's a cool name. Jenny, it's a cool name. It's worth considering. Just saying. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now. The Gospel of Luke is written by who? Good job. The Gospel of Luke is written by Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. He was a Gentile. He was a physician. He is writing an account to a man named Theophilus. Now, we're not exactly sure who Theophilus is, Theophilus may have been an actual person or a representation of a person. Regardless about the speculation of who he is, what is written is written in two volumes. So you have the book of Luke, or the gospel according to Luke, and then volume two is the book of Acts. So to understand that we're going from the beginning of Luke, there, these, were historical, these were historical documents. These were accounts of eyewitnesses. These were carefully investigated and put into order is what Luke tells us, right? So the order starts with the book. In the book of Luke, the order starts with the, the, the account of John the Baptist. And then, of course, it leads us all the way to the resurrection of Jesus and his ascent into heaven, okay? So what we have in the book of Acts 
is a continuation of the account of the followers of Jesus and how the church is born as well as how it thrives. And so you have Luke and Acts written in one and two volumes. And so now it brings us to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says this. In my book, Theophilus, he's writing again to Theophilus. In my book, former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. Go next, go next one. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. You see, a lot of times we fail to understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just take off to heaven. Jesus rose from the dead and spent 40 days interacting with people. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. In other accounts of the days after the resurrection, we are told that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. He left no doubt about his resurrection. Amen? People had eyewitness accounts of Jesus after his death and resurrection. During these interactions, after the resurrection, before he ascended, Jesus gave them instruction. He gave them this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. It says this. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John was baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Say with me the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. The instruction is to wait in Jerusalem. Don't leave. Because just like John baptized with water, you will be baptized again, Mike, with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, we aren't going to cover it in depth this week, but we will in the next message in the series. Because when we get into Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit moving, right? But as believers, I want you to understand that we are called both to water baptism as well as Holy Spirit baptism. The believers Jesus was speaking with, they were saved. And I believe, I imagine, that all of them had probably been water baptized. But now they were told to wait for another baptism. So if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, most of the time you've had an opportunity to be water baptized. What is water baptism? It is a representation of our new birth. It is a representation, it's a testimony of our life in Christ to others, right? And here at this church, uh, when we have people that want to be water baptized, we wait for the weather to warm up a little bit, and then we go out to the lake, and we baptize them, right, Gary? We get out in the water, and it's nice and squishy under our feet, and we lower them in the water, and we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some of you have had that opportunity, had that experience. So you go out in the water, we do that. We, it, it is a tremendous experience. It's something every believer should take part in if they have the opportunity. If they have the opportunity, every believer should, should take part in it. And I want to be clear about this. It is not a requirement of salvation, but it is a testament of salvation. And what we are directed to do by the Bible, amen? How many, how many got in water baptized? 
If you have not, I would encourage you, as a Christian, as a believer, you should be. And if you want to be, let me know after the service, and we will schedule you in to go over to, where do we go? Pappy's? Pappy's. Where's, what, what lake is that? Bingham. Why in the world am I? It's out of my mind right now. How many know when, how, okay, so uh, Mike Nichols, you've been baptized with water, right? So when you were baptized, did you just get a little bit of water on you? No, it was a lot of water, right? It was, uh, I, mean, I mean, you got submersed, right? You were overtaken by the water. You see, physically, when you're water baptized, you are submersed in the water. Spiritually, when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, your spirit man is overwhelmed by the presence of God. You are overcome by. You are filled to overflowing. Amen? And out of that overflow, the presence of God is distributed into the lives of those around us. Out of the overflow is how we affect those around us for Christ. Out of the overflow is how we affect those around us with the presence of God. You see, if you're just, if you're given out of the, you, you say, oh, I got filled. I got filled. Oh, man, I, I want to preach this in two weeks, but I want to preach it now. You know what I mean? So many times you say, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Did you have an experience with God where he filled you up to overflowing? And they say, yeah, I did way back in 1987. Right? No, 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 no. I don't care if you were filled in 1987. The question is, have you been filled recently? Are you being filled continually? People say, yep, I was filled in 1987. I laid hands on someone and they were healed. I spoke in tongues. Somebody was delivered. It was amazing. It was powerful. Great. What's happened since? Well, are we being filled continually with his presence? A lot of us are being filled with something, right? But are you sure it's the presence of God? What does it mean to be filled? What does it mean to be baptized? We're going to, man, two weeks, I'm telling you. Historically, we see all of that happen in Acts chapter 2, but for now, we're still in Acts chapter 1. And the disciples of Jesus have a question for him. How many know it's, it's good to ask Jesus questions every once in a while? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see where their mindset's at. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power, say power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power, say power. Power, we're going to use another Greek word here in a minute, dunamis. That word, that word power is the Greek word dunamis. I'm not even preaching this for two weeks. But I'm going to preach a little bit right now. You know where dunamis, what the word dunamis is? It's where we get the word dynamite. It is that explosive power of God. 
If you have not witnessed or experienced the dynamic, powerful, explosive power of the Holy Spirit, you are missing out. You say, Pastor David, what happens when it happens? Man, the Lord fills you to overflowing, and out of that overflow come gifts. Some have gifts of tongues. Some have gifts of healing. Some have gifts of miracles. Some, there's all sorts of different gifts that come forward. And we're going to get into this, man, two weeks. I was talking about time because I, I want to, again, I'm here to serve you. And I want to serve you well. Oh, man. The question that the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, is it time? Is it time? It seems the focus of the disciples is on the political power in Israel. How many know it's very easy to get caught up in the political power? Come on, I mean, I know we're talking about Israel so many thousands of years ago, but we can relate to this today, right? I mean, it was very easy to get caught up in who's in political power. They had seen with their own eyes that there was a spiritual rebirth in Christ, and now they wanted to know when it will manifest physically and specifically nationally. Jesus, I mean, there's been a rebirth spiritually. We've seen what you've done. This is amazing, but when is this going to happen nationally? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. Dang it. How many can't stand it when you ask the Lord, come on, come on. I need some direction here. I need some, I need some guidance here. And all you hear is silence. Jesus answers it this way. He says this, the Father has it fixed. Put your trust in God. So the fact is, even when you think the heavens are silent, God has given you the answer. Put your trust in me. There's a specific level of faith and trust that's required here. In the meantime, while you're trusting in the Father, this is what Jesus says. In the meantime, while you're trusting in the Father, I have a job for you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're to be witnesses. So again, we're going to examine what this means fully in chapter 2. And so Jesus speaks these things to them, and then says, it's time to go. How many know sometimes it's time to go? Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, we just finished our study in Revelation, right? How many know we just finished five months of study, 20 sessions about Revelation, so we know the two words of these, the, the words of these two men will soon come to pass, right? When will it come to pass? Soon. But in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are just standing there. 
Acts chapter 1, they're standing there, staring off, Lord, where'd you go? The two men, we, we, we're assuming they're angels, right? We assume they're angels, say, whoa, whoa, keep looking, keep looking. Someday he's going to come back, and you're going to see him just as he ascended, he's going to descend. He's coming back on a cloud of glory, amen? He's coming, he's coming back under power and authority, amen? He's coming back as the king of kings, as the lord of lords, with a tattoo down his leg and the commitment to make someone bleed, amen? You guys don't, yeah, no, no, don't get too excited about this. I mean, how many ready for him to come back? How many look and go, man, someday, I don't know when, but soon. And when we talk about power and authority, when we talk about, man, he's coming back with a sword and he's coming back with a commitment to make someone bleed, he's coming back with a tattoo down his leg, all of a sudden people get real silent. All the most holy people in church don't want to hear that. Well, no, they, I mean, Jesus is just, ooh, right, just, just have the halo above. And that's just the way we want to see Jesus. We just want to see him as gentle. We just want to see him as just, just well, he's just a guy I'd like to hang out with. I've spoken about this before, but it's worth saying again. We need to have a proper view of who Christ is in our life. We need to have a proper view of who Jesus is. If you have made Jesus into this diaper, halo, baby Christ, you need a different picture of who he is. That's not the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know is not this effeminate dude walking around in sandals wanting to order a cup of coffee. Right? That's not who Jesus is. When he's coming back, he's coming back in dunamis power. Dynamite, explosive power. And we better get ready for it. You say, well, I don't know about that. There's a, a girl, oh man, she's a very sweet girl. Very, very sweet girl. Two years ago, we're at camp, and they had asked me to bring fireworks. Yeah. And I brought a lot of fireworks. So I wanted to put on a good show, so I brought a lot of fireworks, and she, and, and she was kind of skittish. She's a very sweet woman, uh, married to a really nice guy, and a very sweet couple, but she was just very skittish. Uh, how many ever, uh, oh, uh, how many ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? And it's uh, Amy's mom. Right? She's like, oh, no. Oh, no. She's so sweet, right? This girl, same way, just so sweet. Oh, oh, just, uh, just, they're going to be, uh, she, I lit the fireworks off and she went nuts. She's like, oh, I thought it was going to be sparklers and, and maybe, I didn't know it would be that loud. I mean, the, 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 it, was, it was just like, she was not expecting it. I'm telling you, if you are not expecting the dunamis power of God to come down, you're going to be one of those people that went, oh no, it's too exciting for me. Oh no, what's happening here? Oh no, it's too noisy. Please, keep, could you keep it down a little bit? Karen. Come on. So we'll have a bunch of Karens in the church 
saying, Lord, I know you're coming back, but please keep it down. They have instructions from Jesus now. Go to Jerusalem and wait. Say wait. How many hate that word? I want it now. I want it now. Who just said now? Oliver? Now. <laughs> they make their way back to Jerusalem. They go to the place called the upper room. The upper room, the disciples are there. The other followers of Jesus are there. Jesus' family is there. And what happens is they all begin to pray. In all, there's about 120 people in this room praying. When Peter speaks up and says, hey, we have some business to take care of. You see, if you remember who followed Jesus in the Gospels, not all of the disciples who followed Jesus were in this room. How many know not everybody was there? Specifically, there was a man missing named Judas, the one who betrayed our master. Let us not forget that the man who betrayed him was also the man who walked with him for three years. Let us not forget that the man who betrayed him saw miracles and healings, saw Jesus say, I am. The events over the past 43 or so days are fresh in the minds of the disciples. 43 or so days since their Lord was put on the cross. The last 40 they'd had with him. Praise the Lord. Amen. But Judas was still fresh in their minds. So Peter speaks up and says, hey, we need to do something about Judas. The Bible says that Judas betrayed the Lord and he was filled with remorse, and he went to a field, and in Matthew, it says that he hung himself. Here, we see a more graphic understanding of what happened to him. Peter speaks up in the middle of this prayer meeting, and he says this, verse 16. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. And this is what we were told about him, verse 17. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward from his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. All his intestines spilled out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so the field that was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. A lot of times we think about the death of Judas, and we don't really, oh yeah, he hung himself, right? One commentary noted that while Judas tried to hang himself, it appears that he was unsuccessful. Because it seems that he fell to the sharp rocks below where he was disemboweled. Kind of gruesome. Kind of gross. It's not likely a quick end. It's not a painless end for the death of the man called Judas. 
Peter brings this up because the 12 disciples were now 11. And a man needed to take, their, take Judas's place. But whoever this man was, he had to meet specific criteria. They weren't just going to take any Joe Schmo off the road. Hey, guess what? You're in the, you're in the 12 now. They, there were certain criteria. Verse 21 says this. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness of the resurrection. Whoever this new disciple was needed to have been there from the beginning. That's good criteria, right? Should be there from the beginning. They need to be a witness to all that Christ did and was. There's a commentarian named David Guzik. He says this. We find no evidence that these qualifications were discovered either by the Scripture or by a special leading of the Holy Spirit. We might simply say that they used what is called sanctified common sense. There seemed to be a logical common sense requirement for the successor of Judas's office as disciple. How many glad that in our life we can make sanctified common sense? Right, Doug? This common sense is sanctified or pure because it was a decision that was being made by those in obedience, in fellowship, in prayer, in the scriptures, and I would say most importantly, with men who desire God's will. But they didn't have a direct word from the Lord. Well, Pastor David, I have to, in order for me to move, I need a direct word of the Lord. I mean, I need a burning bush, cloud of glory experience in order to move. And a lot of times, God doesn't give us that. He, what he does give us is sanctified common sense. Not just common sense in our own workings, but we've prayed about it, we've gone over it, we have a desire for the will of God in our lives. And so God gives us sanctified common sense. How many know there are some decisions in life where we need the clear direction of God? There are. But right now, these guys are just looking at the basics. They're saying, hey, there was 12, now there's 11, we're going to need another one. It makes sense that the other one should be someone who was with us the whole time. That is common sense. They didn't need a voice from the heaven to figure that out. How many know that sometimes, many times, decisions in our life can be made with common sense? And hopefully, the best common sense is sanctified common sense. Right, Steve? So you pray, you obey, you read the, Lord, you read the Word, you desire God's will, and then you make a decision. I know some people who are just like, they need to feel led of the Lord for everything, Doug. Fruit Loops or Cheerios? Fruit Loops or Cheerios? Fruit Loops or Cheerios? Come on, Lord, direct me. There's a Fruit Loop there. There's a Fruit Loop there, all right. Lord, what should I wear today? Should it be blue or red? I'm a primary color guy, so that's how it goes. Lord, direct me which shoes to wear today. God gave you common sense. I heard a, there's a famous story. I don't know if it's true. Gosh, 
It's one of those funniest things. It's, you hear the story years and years and years, and you never know if it's true. Because they said, well, nobody would tell God. Nobody would, God wouldn't tell anybody what to wear. That's stupid. You just you know, open your closet and pick something out. Sometimes you're successful. Sometimes you're not. A man stood in front of his closet, and he heard the Lord say to him, wear green pants today. And the, Lord, and the man said, I don't want to wear green pants. And he heard the Lord again say to him, wear green pants with a yellow shirt and red socks. And this is, I'm paraphrasing the story, but it's along these same lines. Green pants, red shirt, or green pants, yellow shirt, red socks. Lord, that sounds stupid. I'm going to look like an idiot. And he said he felt the Lord direct him to go, over to, go out into the highway and just stand there. How many have heard this story before? He's standing there all day. Stupid green pants, stupid yellow shirt, stupid red socks. All of a sudden, a man drives up his car, gets right up next to him, opens his door and says, the Lord spoke to me that there would be a man on this highway wearing a green pants and a yellow shirt and red socks. What must I do to be saved? It's not true. It's not true. I've heard pastors and ministers tell it. Tim, we've heard that story for years, right? It's always a different variation of it. Oh, polka dots this time. That's an interesting choice. Thank you, Lord. How many know God gave us common sense? And prayerfully, you're using sanctified common sense. About two years ago, I had Steve Mann in my backyard. I had some water issues in my basement. It's weird how the Lord works, Steve. As I was preparing this message, I have water issues in my basement. So they're looking at what needed to be done. They're looking at the issue. And they were looking at what needed uh, They probably weren't entirely sure what direction to go. Right? Johnny, you remember this? In the backyard. And so Steve kind of looked at the situation. And he said, well... Let's pray about it. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Let's pray about it. So we did. Then he made a decision and went to work. Listen, I don't think he waited for an angel to appear with specific instructions. I don't think he waited for an angel to be like, this pipe goes to this pipe and do-do-do-do-do, right? That's not how it works, right? He wasn't waiting for a divine intervention or divine knowledge of my water pipes. He just went to work with what I would call sanctified common sense. How many know that sometimes there's an, there's an issue at your job, there's an issue in your life where you just go, Lord, I need your help, I need your direction, and then you make a decision and go. I'm so thankful for sanctified common sense. I wish I used it more. Amen? Sometimes we don't need sanctified common sense. Sometimes we need a direct word from the Lord, right? We, I mean big decisions. Lord, we got big things coming up. We got a big decision to make. Is this the person I should marry? Let me ask you, let me just save you a little time. If you're that worried about the decision, you might want to rethink it. But what if the Lord directs me? God bless you. <laughs> I, really, I mean, look, we have big decisions in our life to make, right? And sometimes we just, we, we fret about it. 
Lord, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go here? Should I go there? Are you following peace in your life? Are you following the Holy Spirit in your life? Are we? Because in the New Testament, beginning of the New Testament, they had a different method of determining God's will. Peter and the rest of the people have laid out the guidelines for the criteria of who is going to fulfill Judas's spot. It turns out there's two men. Two men that fulfill the criteria. Uh, verse 23, it says this. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, so a man with three names, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Verse 26, this is where it gets interesting. And they cast lots for him. They cast lots for him. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They had been praying. They used sanctified knowledge to say, okay, we need two candidates, or we need some candidates here, and here's why. And out of that sanctified common knowledge came two candidates. One man with three names and one man with one name. And in the end, they decide to cast lots because they needed to know God's will. Now, some people may have the question, what does it mean to cast lots? Casting lots in the Bible meant this. There's a pretty common practice throughout the Old Testament. When a difficult decision had to be made, when a choice had to be made, lots were cast to make the decision. Now, there's different type of lots. Some were sticks and some were stones. So, for instance, if you had three sticks in your hand, you would take the three sticks and you would drop them. And if the sticks crossed each other, it was a yes, and if they didn't, it was a no. So, Lord, should I go here? Boom. Yes? All right, let's go. That's the will of God. So they were deciding on God using these lots. Either Sometimes it was used in religious ways, and sometimes it was used in secular ways. It was used for gambling. It was, remember, uh, they cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Sometimes they would use stones, a dark stone and a light stone. And on one stone it had like a yes on it, and the other stone had a no on it. And so they took them out of the bag and they dropped the stones. And if it said no, okay, Lord, we're not, do we're not doing that. If it said yes, okay, Lord, we're doing that. If it came up as even, might want to draw again. Or we're going to wait a little while and then draw again. You see, it's an awfully weird way to determine God's will. It's an awfully strange way. You say, weren't they, I mean, essentially throwing dice? Sure. Sure. Because truly, that's what they were doing. They were using chance. They were using just fate. All right, Lord, let your will be done. Boom. But this wasn't, again, this wasn't just used religious. It was used in pagan practices. It was used to, des to decide land. Who owned which land? Lots were cast. Who got what clothes? Lots were cast. Who, uh, if there was war and warriors needed to go, but they only needed a percentage, lots were cast. You say, isn't this a weird and probably inappropriate way to decide God's will? How many would say that's kind of a weird way to decide God's will? 
Right? All right, Lord, should I go here? Give me a six. Give me a six. Boom. Right? That's essentially, uh, that's, this is what it is. It's kind of weird. And maybe even an inappropriate way of determining God's will. But when you don't have a burning bush and you don't have a cloud of glory telling you specifically what to do, how else are you supposed to decide God's will? And then you see what it says in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So you drop the sticks, you drop the stones, and the Lord decides which way they go. That's the way it was used in the Old Testament. And now here at the beginning of the New Testament church in Acts. So the question comes up, is this something we should do today? Is this something we should do today? All right, Gary. We got this new carpet that we got, right? Should we put it in? So we throw the dice for it, right? No, I mean, is that, is that how we should make decisions today? One commentary gave kind of a tongue-in-cheek response to this question, but it also carries some real truth, truth with it, so hear me out. It says this. The casting of lots may be an imperfect way to discern God's will, but it is certainly much better than the methods many Christians use today. That is, too many rely on emotions, too many rely on circumstances, and too many rely on feelings. I don't want you going home and like rolling dice to make big decisions, right? That's not, that's not what I want you to leave here with. That wouldn't be using wisdom. But a lot of times we go home and we just, we just wherever our feelings go, Wherever our feelings go, should I marry this person? I love them. Oh, your feelings betray you. Should I take this job? Well, it's such a beautiful area of the country and the mountains and the. And you get there and you discover it's 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 devastating to your family. Should I do this? Should I buy this? Should I, should I do this or do that? And you make decisions based on feelings and emotions. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. How many know in our life we don't want to be led by feelings and emotions? We want to be led by the Spirit of God. But in Acts chapter 1, we have to keep two things in mind. One is this. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's virtually no mention of casting of lots. It's all throughout the Old Testament, but none in the New Testament. And why is that? Why don't we see it again? And it brings us to the most important point, and it's this. They were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit. They were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit, what we call the promise of the Father, amen? That doesn't happen until the next chapter. A lot of us are making vital decisions based on feeling, based on emotions, based on circumstances. But we are called to pray, we are called to seek the Lord's guidance, and we're called to move according to His will and not ours. Amen? So in two weeks, we will get into Acts chapter 2 and see the filling of the Holy Spirit as well as the beginning of the church. Say the church. Not a church, but the church. 
We are the Ecclesia this morning. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please. Woo! It's noon. How many are ready to get some lunch? Praise the Lord. Listen, this next week, uh, please be in prayer for me. I'll be here through uh, Friday, but then I'll be going to Arizona for about a week. Uh, I'll be taking part in a national board meeting uh, for the organization that this church is a part of. And so if you would, please pray for me. Uh, it's my first experience going to that, and I want to uh, contribute in a good way. And so uh, I'm going to miss you guys next week. I won't be here, but I'm also going to miss the ministry of Dan Winkowich, who is going to be here. So Dan Winkowich, if you have not heard him or been by him, uh, you are going to be blessed by his ministry. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much this morning that we get to come together as the church. We are part of a local body. We are part of a church, but together we are part of the church. Those who have put their trust in you. Lord, I thank you so much for this. Lord, for this message. As we start to learn what it means to be the church. In two weeks, as we learn about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you lead us and guide us in our decisions with sanctified common sense. Lord, speak to us in those decisions we need to make that are huge in our life. Give us peace and give us clarity in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray over those who are here this morning. I pray that you would bless them and I pray that you would keep them. Lord, I pray that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would give them rest in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Wednesday night, the case for faith. You're not going to want to miss it. It's just about an hour long uh, on evil and suffering. You're not going to want to miss it. We love you. We'll see you then.